I give thanks for our pastors and our lay leader, Liz Reese, for leading us in that beautiful and, and powerful time of prayer. I'm thankful to have Pastor Gary Henderson uh, here with me to share in this message. Uh, many of you know and love Pastor Gary. He's on our teaching and preaching team here. He also, you may not know, is on our church council and a part of our leadership team here at Providence Church, which means I call Gary almost every day. <laughs> I'm sorry. I call him almost every day. Too for, much. Too, too much, much. He did, uh, for guidance. And uh, thank you, Gary. I, I've asked him to help me uh, a lot uh, over the last uh, few months, especially, and, and today. I just asked Gary to to help me uh, lead this message. Providence Church, uh, about four years ago, uh, some of you will remember um, in one of our worship service, I was standing, actually, I remember I was standing, I was like almost right there, and it was in one of those times when our nation was again at a fever pitch uh, around uh, racism and division, uh, another senseless killing of an African-American man. At that particular time, uh, his name was Alton Sterling. And I stood right here, and I didn't know what to say. Uh, I didn't know what to do. As a, as a pastor of a predominantly white church, I really didn't know what it was I was supposed to offer in that moment. And I also kind of knew that I probably didn't have to say anything, um, that I could probably just move on with my sermon. But instead, in that moment, I just said something. Uh, didn't take a lot of courage, but I just said, you know what? I don't know what to say, and I don't know what to do, but I know that we have to say something, and I know we have to do something. The reason I remember that moment wasn't because of my words, but was because when I said that at all three services that day, the church erupted in applause. It's this like beautiful applause. I knew the applause was not for me. We weren't celebrating what was going on in the nation, but I felt the body, sometimes we call the church the body, I felt the body was aching as well. And I felt the church, you guys, saying, we're with you, Jacob. I felt us saying four years ago, enough's enough. You know, we talk about all these things that our gospel is about leading people out of oppression, leading people out of captivity, that all people are made in the image of God. And I felt us saying, we'll we'll go. Where are we going to (laughs) go? What are we going to do? When I look back, Providence Church, four years ago, I realize that I have not done enough. That's not um, white guilt. This is a confession. This is responsibility. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. And so what I'm saying is I realize that I have not done enough. I I realize that what I have done is I've worked for and spoken out more for me than the oppressed in the last four years. That's true. And I'm sorry. I repent. But repentance is not just time to throw a pity party. Repentance means... I'm going to turn this sucker around. That's right, sir. That's you know, I'm going to do something different. Absolutely. And so this service today is not a one-off for us, but a commitment that we're continuing to live in to say that we want to work for justice for our brothers and sisters. I grew up in Wilson County. Did y'all know that? I don't know if I ever told you any stories about growing up in Wilson County. No, we didn't know that. <laughs> yeah, so I love Wilson County. I'm crazy about Wilson County. Like, I'm committed to it. I live next door to my parents on the street that I grew up in. And when I tell stories about growing up in Wilson County, it sounds pretty idyllic. You know, I realize Rachel, my wife, Gary, she'll say to me, you act like you're, you're growing up was like you were Huckleberry Finn or something, you know? And I, I'm like, I was Huckleberry Finn, you know, traipsing through the woods and all those kind of things. And as I thought about that recently, you know what? My growing up was a lot like Huckleberry Finn, if you're familiar with that story. And what I mean by that is I had a pretty idyllic childhood. And I was able to traipse through the woods and through the fields and pretty much do whatever I wanted. But that was not the story for all of my neighbors. 
And so when I tell you story after story about Gladeville Elementary, well, guess what? Not everybody at Gladeville Elementary has my story. And you hear me tell these great stories about my bus ride home. We got on Stewart's Ferry Pike. We took a right down Hark Reader Road, hit Central Pike, and headed to my house. Well, not all the kids on my bus had the same story that I have. I'm a graduate of Mount Juliet High School, Golden Bears. Well, not every kid that goes to Mount Juliet High School was able. What I'm saying is my story is not the same as all of my neighbor's story. Gary, I know that you grew up in Mississippi in the 1960s. Oh, I'll tell you the year. I was, <laughs> I was born in 1957. Yeah. Yeah. So tell me about how that, people have heard so much how my childhood shaped my life. Tell me about what it was like to grow up in the Deep South in the 50s and 60s. Sure, I don't mind saying a word about that, Jacob. Uh, I've been playing this through my head quite a bit in the, events of, in, in the midst of the events of the last week. And let me put 1957 in a context. That's about three years after this uh, Supreme Court decision that abolished segregation in schools legally, mm-hmm. separate, from, separate and equal. But it was two years after the death in Mississippi, a tragic death of a young boy from Chicago who was brutally murdered. Mm-hmm. And so I've been playing that through my head this week, but in 1957, when I was born, the world was on fire, and I didn't even know it. The world was on fire. Uh, I grew up in a neighborhood. It was an odd kind of place in Mississippi because it was a brand new street. I guess in today's language, you might call it gentrification, but don't go that deep with me. It wasn't that nice, but it was a brand new street. Every homeowner was African-American and all around us was a white community that was probably a lot poorer than the one street that I lived on. Mm -hmm. Next door to me was a very famous author, but down the street from me was someone who many of you may know, his name was Medgar Evers. And I remembered, I don't tell this story often, but I remember as a boy almost six years of age, waking up in the middle of night to gunshots. It was the night in June, I looked it up today, it was June the 12th, it was 57 years ago that he was assassinated as he got out of his driveway to go into his home. I knew that as a boy, but not really in a deep sort of way. I knew it, but I I logged it away, and I didn't really talk about it much. But when I came to Nashville about 13 years ago, I was at an event, and a man was up talking from Arkansas, a black man. He told a story about his father and how the next day after an event where he protested something at work, his father was found dead in the river. Mm. I remember weeping that day. Because I had a flashback, Jacob, to where I grew up. And I realized that there was this unresolved pain that I never dealt with. So, but but Mississippi for me, even though I tell that painful story, was a beautiful moment for me in terms of growing up and preparing me to face the world in really, um, I would say, audacious ways. (laughs) Now I'm going to shut up because, you know, well, I can talk all day. But you've seen the world. Yeah. You know, most people probably don't know that you led a, uh, a global initiative to eradicate malaria in Africa. I mean, how many times have you been to Africa? I lost count, but I'm, I'm sure over 50 times. Yeah. I'm sure over 50 times. So this uh, boy who grows up in Mississippi ends up traveling all over the world um, trying to save lives yes. and, and free people uh, from oppression. I know that you and Gwen, your wife Gwen went to West Africa recently, but that was for a different reason, right. to trace some steps of right. the slave trade. How does that 
story and walking those steps connect with growing up in the Deep South and what we're facing right now as a nation? Well, let me give a context. It was 2005, Gwen and I and our son, who was 16, made a trip to Africa for the first time. Zimbabwe, African University, and also to South Africa. And our son is 16, as a 16-year-old, wasn't sure he really wanted to go. And when I pressed him on it, it was because he thought it was going to be too hot. <laughs> well, it was a time of year in Zimbabwe when it wasn't quite so hot. So we went. We had this amazing life-transforming event. But what happened, and I've said this to people, I came home in 2005, Jacob, and I had been bitten by the Africa bug. <laughs> I've been pastoring almost 20 years, and I knew that there was something else for me. I'll fast forward really quickly, and God opened some miraculous doors that allowed me to just leave the parish, come to Nashville, start really at the ground level. I parachuted into town, is the way I tell the story, <laughs> yeah. to this malaria initiative. You know, people were dying at an alarming rate, and the global community was saying no. So in the midst of that, I've traveled a lot to Africa, and I tell people in the midst of the mmm of life, mm. every time I can just put my feet on the ground in Africa, it's a healing moment for okay. me. It's like, oh, I'm home. But to your other question around just a year ago, um, I've, I've had this passion burning in me to, to take people to Mother Africa to experience Really, the slave trade, and you may think that's odd, but it's so much a part of our American journey, and we don't tell that story often enough. And I've really had a heart to take some African Americans for reasons of, of rootage. I, I listen to European Americans sometimes, and they trace their ancestry back eight, ten generations to Ireland and Scotland and all of those places. And I think, well, I can go back to my, hmm, maybe my grandfather, maybe a little deeper than that. But the pilgrimage to Africa a year ago, it was 400 years since the beginning of slave trade wow. to the new world. And for the small group of pilgrims that went, it was a life transforming moment. Mm -hmm. uh, we visited up close the horror of slave trade. I'd been there before, but I was there with some new folk. And one of the really transformational places for me was a river called Slave River, and it was the place after people had traveled across the continent of Africa, and it was about 80 miles from the coast where they entered the water and they took the last bath before they were entombed. They called them castles. No, they're forts. They were dungeons, but they were entombed for months. And as I stood in those waters with a friend that I've known for many years, at least for me, I, I could hear my ancestors speaking out to me courageously, but also empowering me for the journey in America. Okay, Gary, shut up again. No, no, yeah, I appreciate you sharing, because I think so often we forget, we gloss over, um, you know, sometimes we're wondering, How's, why is this happening? What's going on? And we forget 246 years of slavery in this nation, you know, followed by some 90 years of, of segregation. And now we're just, you know, a handful of decades in to trying to, to work through this. And, and um, for you to to take us on that journey helps us you know, open up our eyes. In fact, you've been opening up my eyes uh, to ways of, of thinking about what we can do. And, and, and what I mean is what we can at Providence Church can do. And some of what I've said to Gary, even the last few weeks is going back four years ago. I don't know what to do. I don't know what to say, that kind of thing. And you've encouraged me, Gary, to say something and to do something. Um, and I'll say to you, I'll be like, mm -hmm. well, I don't want to make a misstep. I don't want to say the wrong thing. 
I'd love for you to share, because I think there's probably a lot of people listening and watching who have that same feeling, like, I want to say something, I want to do something, but I don't want to mess up. I know that I'll say the wrong thing. Um, pretend like you're talking to me and give okay. that word of encouragement okay. about the missteps. Sure, sure. I can almost quote what I say <laughs> to you on more than one occasion, because the truth be told, uh, our pastor is sometimes a slow learner. <laughs> you know, I, I, I say that in love, all right? But I said something like, the way to better... Along the way to better, mm -hmm. we will make mistakes yeah, that's right. individually and collectively on the way to better. Mm -hmm. But that can't keep us on the journey to better. Because when I make my mistakes along the way to better, and when we make our mistakes along the way to better, we know that our intention is no harm. Mm -hmm. We know that we love each other and we can walk this road together as brothers, as friends, as fellow laborers. The other thing I remember, I remember saying to you, Jacob, is, is we've agonized over this day, you know, what's appropriate for this day? And we went back and forth and back and forth, and I had a sleepless night, and he had probably more sleepless nights than I know. Uh, I said to Pastor Jacob, we need to hear your voice. And I say your voice because the cry from the African-American community as I live it and hear it is that I've said at work, the silence is deafening. The silence is deafening. We can no longer be silent to the sin of racism. When we are silent, we are complicit. We are complicit. And I've said to, to my friends who are not of the same hue, I need you to speak up. I need you to say to your family and your friends and your neighbors, we cannot live this way anymore. We are all fearfully and wonderfully made. And when your family member and when your neighbor and when your club member goes down that road, silence won't do anymore. Speak up, speak up loudly that there might be a difference in the world. We've been circling around this barn for too long. I feel like I'm in 1955 and it's 2020. 2020. 2020. So I think, Gary, as you're talking, I'm sitting here thinking like, how in the world do we end up sitting on the stage across from each other? Like, how, how, did, we get, how did we get connected? Like, how do we become people who, who love each other, who are agonizing together, who are forgiving each other? You know, I think about now that our relationship has grown over the, the last little bit, like, how did we get to a place where my girls are learning how to cook in your kitchen with Gwen? You know, how do we get to a place where you won't bring me that bag of, of bacon that oh, you promised? Oh, I'm bringing you the bacon, to, to bring Jacob. Me, I'm going to bring you know, it. I'm how do we get to the, the place where we're texting each other on yeah. the weekends about songs that are impacting our hearts? And, and, and if I can tease that out even a little bit more, sure. it's like, how do we get to a place where we're weeping together? Sure. And how do we, how do we get to a place where you will forgive me for the things that I say sure. that, that are offensive? And, and it's sure. Jesus. Right. Um, I really don't know how I found my way to Providence. We got in the car one Sunday. We'd heard about a church in Mount Juliet. We showed up and we stayed. Okay. That's the short, simple answer. I walked through and I'm like, okay, this feels like home. But how, how do we get to this, this, this really close place and this connection as brothers? I would say it is really the gift of God. Uh, I, I say to you sometimes in the midst of the, of the struggle, when you're struggling with, oh, I, I want to get it right and did I do whatever, but I say, uh, but I know your heart. Yeah. You know, you know my heart. Yeah. 
You know, sometimes we have hard conversations. And sometimes I remember writing an email once and I prefaced it and I said, the content of this email is pretty heavy, okay? I'm gonna say that right up front, but I think you need to look at it. You need to explore it because it's a learning journey together. Um, I look at you and I see a brother, not a stranger. I look at you and see someone who I care about. I look at you and see a child of God. I look at you and I see someone fearfully and wonderfully made. And I hear God saying, that's good. And I think the cry in America today is for us to look at each other and our great variety and our great difference and our great disagreements and say, but there's my brother, my sister, my neighbor, my friend. How beautiful and wonderful this is. Look at what God has done in this, shall I say, crazy array. <laughs> Let me say one other thing okay. about you, okay? Because oh, yeah, I, I, like I, because I love him, I can say this. I often say to him, particularly when I was first getting to know Pastor Jacob, I say, you know, I, I love you. You know, I, I believe you're a great preacher, but I said, you're just as goofy as they come. <laughs> I don't get that. I oh, I say it publicly, okay? I, but I say that, but he knows I love him. Amen. So I can do that. Yeah. Well, I'm going to try to say something. Okay. Um, that I've been thinking about in conjunction with what we thought we'd be talking about this Sunday with Acts chapter 1 and chapter 2, where the Holy Spirit comes and takes away the dividing lines. You know, if we're here together, really, we know each other because of the church, because of Jesus, because of our love for God. And I think it's time, you know, if we're going to be able to move forward, that we really have to understand our story. Mm -hmm. And I think sometimes uh, we don't really understand the story of how the people of God, the Jesus followers, came to be. That it was at a moment when dividing lines came down and the only power they had to move forward was through the Holy Ghost. Holy Ghost. I said the Holy Ghost. I don't know where that came from. The Holy Spirit. You know, and it's like, so I'm not saying like we need a Holy Ghost party and everything's going to be okay, though that probably wouldn't hurt, right? Mm -hmm. um, but I am saying that for us as Christians, we have to understand the core of our story if we are going to be people who lead and move forward in the midst of this. We can't take our cue and our message from all these different messages that are that are coming out there. And so what, what's been impressed upon my heart, like for today, like if we're going to be committed to a long hard, arduous work as a church of moving, of trying to disrupt racism with the hope that someday maybe our grandkids see it dismantled, then we are going to have to first come to a real place of lament. Like, we're going to have to cry. Like, we're going to have to cry over mothers who lose their sons. And we're yes, going to have sir. to cry out to God. And we've done a little bit of that today, but we're going to have to do a whole lot more. We're going to have to, to understand our story and understand the brokenness. We look at our nation right now and we say, this is not right. This is not okay. When you tell me that, that you feel fear going for a jog in your neighborhood, I'm like, that's not okay. You know, that's not. And so, so we lament that. We cry out to God. And, and so I would urge you, uh, people of God, to think about before you speak, maybe you should lament. Like before you post on Facebook, maybe you should lament and cry over this. Mm -hmm. Maybe you should grieve this. You know, and um, when one of my daughters saw the, the video of George Floyd she came into my room and yeah. uh, was weeping. Yeah. Yeah. And she was asking me, uh, she said, why? She said, how? And then she said, what are we going to do, Dad? Mm -hmm. And we've sought to teach our kids about, um, about the injustices of, 
of racism and what's coming out of slavery. I mean, my girls have sat in the Ebenezer Baptist Church in Atlanta at the Martin Luther King historic site where, where, where King preached and where his funeral was held. My girls have stood at the grave of Medgar Evers at, at the Arlington National mm-hmm. Cemetery. We've tried to teach them, but I'm realizing now I've got to teach them to lament. I've got to teach them to cry over this and to, and to weep. And it's, in, it's in that lamenting, I think, that we can come to that place that we see in Acts chapter 2, which is repenting mm-hmm. and repenting of our, of our part in this. So Peter stands up and, and they're saying, what are we going to do? Now they can all speak the same or hear the same language. And he says, you have to repent. Right. Um, and what I see happening right now, Gary, is like all we want to do is point out the wrong in, in other people. Like there's these terrible things happening. We just want to say that person's wrong and that person's doing the wrong. Well, <laughs> what's been impressive on my heart is that the church was started when 3,000 people said, I have sinned. Mm-hmm. You see what I'm saying? Yes, sir. Yes, sir. They, they said, I see where I have rebelled against God. Yes, sir. And so I've been praying this prayer coming into this series called The Promise that we'd see a movement of God through Providence, Providence Church, that amazing things would happen. But I'm realizing now that there is never a movement of God until we repent, until we confess our own sins, right? Until we, we see our own part in this. And it's so easy for a lot of us to just kind of see everybody, you know, everybody else's wrong. I don't know, Gary, what you think about the idea of like, communal repenting or how we could repent in this time? Well, I I do resonate with the lamenting and the repenting, but the deep place around lamenting and repenting, uh, I believe is when we confront evil. Hmm. Uh, As I've really agonized this week around all that's been going on, and I too, I've been weeping every day, weeping every day, Hmm. weeping every day. But it, it came to me in one of my early morning uh, prayer walks. I'm an early guy. And I, I could hear so clearly these words, evil has a face. And I'm not talking about people. Evil is systemic. Evil is in a deed. Evil is grotesque in appearance. Evil traumatizes people. The nation is in trauma. But when we face evil, evil will begin to lose its power. (laughs) But when we, I can't look at that video. (laughs) That's too painful to see. When we do that, evil is emboldened. It is strengthened. It becomes even more audacious. So I've determined this week, and I've asked everybody I know, Pastor, look evil in the face because it's painful. But let me tell you what I know about the journey of pain, and you didn't ask me. I'm going to tell you anyhow. (laughs) All right? Pain is a journey. You got to be willing to go through the pain to get to the blessing. So don't run away from evil and its pain and its appearance. Take it on. One other place biblically, real quick. I got hung up in this Genesis story of Jacob wrestling at the river Jabbok. Daybreak is coming and The angel, the man he's wrestling with is getting ready to flee and Jacob holds on and I I see myself at Jacob wrestling right Right. now. 
And in my wrestle, and in our wrestle, I hope we will collectively say, we won't let go until you bless me. Amen. The church does that. You know, in Acts, the church begins to push against evil. Remember what Peter said, guys. He said the promise, so the spirit, the promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off. And so we're getting our commissioning words. Some people might be asking, why are y'all talking about this today? Well, this is our commissioning words. Actually, the vision of providence is to see those who feel disconnected. And so in this time, we have to lean in because the promise is for us, it's for our kids, but it's for all who are far off. The blessing is being offered to them. And so I was reminded of a story from my idyllic childhood this week that I hadn't thought about. I don't think Mm -hmm. I've ever told. And we were riding in in our car. My dad was driving on Central Pike, and we had a car full of Cub Scouts. Back then, I don't think anybody was in a seatbelt. Just a bunch of kids packed into a car, you know. And I remember uh, I was sitting up front with dad, and I remember hearing from the back seat uh, one of the boys tell a joke that had a racial stereotype about African Americans, which was not an uncommon kind of joke to be told in that area in that Mm -hmm. time. And the boys were giggling. And I remember my dad glancing over at me and then looking in the rearview mirror, and this is what he said. He just said, stop. Mm-hmm. In a gentle kind of but stern voice. And then he had some other things to say to us, but I've been hearing that voice in my head, Gary, just this stop. And dad could do that in that moment, like he had the voice and he had the power in the car right then. I don't know what power I have. I don't know what voice I have. But with whatever voice and power I have, I feel, I hear my dad's voice in my head just saying, stop. Mm-hmm. Like, stop, guys. You know, mm-hmm. before you speak, stop. Mm-hmm. Before you post, stop. Mm-hmm. Stop and lament. We have a long journey ahead of us, but today I think it's stop mm-hmm. and lament. Stop and repent. Mm-hmm. Mark and Pastor Harold are going to walk us through a prayer of confession in a moment, a prayer of repentance. That prayer is going to be between you and God. But that's where we start for some great movement that God could do in us and in this nation. Would you pray for us, Gary? Yes, sir. God, we are so grateful that you are God. And in this moment, it seems that the house is on fire. There are no fire trucks, no hoses. God, all we have are buckets but I see us as a band of buckets, God. Ready to take whatever you give us, God, whatever you give us to put out the fire. So God, uh, we are available to you. Help us in places of discomfort to be comfortable with the discomfort that silence will no longer be an option. So God, pray, we pray, by the power of your Pentecostal Holy Spirit, use us to bless people of every tribe, language, and nation as they bless us. God, we thank you. We bless you. In Jesus' strong name, hallelujah. Amen.